scaling companies, it's not about one or two decisions that get made. It's about like 10 a day that get made. And I think that's what's also not obvious is you have to get 80% of them right every day. Otherwise, you can fall on the wrong side of growth. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Wait, so tell me, are you the only person that goes into San Francisco? No, no, we have an office there. We I have, know, but like... No, we have... We probably have a couple hundred seats there, I would say. And on any given day, there's maybe 50. So okay. people are coming and going. My, my direct team is there. Yeah. With a couple of exceptions. But we use it more as like a... People come for offsites. They come for meetings. That's generally how it gets used. And then my core team is there. I think, you know, I've always had this view that R&D and go-to-market work differently and they have different rhythms. So the R&D stuff actually works quite well remotely because the cycles are longer and... Development's a fundamentally async exercise, so it actually works pretty well remote. The go-to-market stuff tends to be a bit faster, so the cycle times require a bit more in-person collaboration. So those are the people you'll generally find in the office are actually more the go-to-market folks. Yeah. Would you enforce that? Enforce people coming? Yeah. Obviously, we're all working through that enforcement. I'd say the streets yeah. are a little busier at the moment than they have been for a while, yeah. just because, for obvious reasons. I think I make it pretty clear my direct reports need to be there three days a week. That's the deal. That's the deal. That's the deal. Now, there are a couple of exceptions. Uh, a couple of guys. So Armand, obviously, he moved to Seattle. He used to be here. Armand, the co-founder. Yeah, co-founder. And uh, Mark, who runs marketing, he and I have worked together for 10 or 11 years. So yeah. he used to live here. He moved. And those are the only real exceptions. Everybody else is in the yeah. house. This topic comes up every time I have a conversation with any executive in a position like yours. It's just a very weird thing going on right now where you almost can't even say if you want people to come back in the office, because for some reason that's sacrilegious in today's day and age, because all of your employees don't want to come back in the office. But the weird tension is that the decision for you to go from Menlo Park to San Francisco is a career decision. If you chose your lifestyle, the obvious answer is, yeah, Jimmy, it was really nice. Like I got to work from home this morning. You know what I mean? And you're making the decision to go up to San Francisco and do that commute as the CEO of a very important public company because you know that it's best for your work. And for some reason, we can't seemingly in today's day and age just acknowledge that we're prioritizing other things, which by the way, is okay. That's okay if you're prioritizing other things. I'm just not sure why it's so taboo to be able to say that. I actually genuinely do believe that the product development cycles work quite well remotely, and I have no issue with that, and we've set up our organization that way. I think my view on the other functions is I task the executives that lead those functions with building a closed system around them, and how they run them is how they run them. As long as they can run them effectively, they can do whatever they like, arguably. And so it's kind of on them. I think what they find is actually... I think you also have to acknowledge that we're learning new tricks as we get older. Like when I see these younger guys collaborate, younger folks collaborate in remote settings, it actually surprises me how effective it is. And so you have to keep, kind of keep a bit of an open mind yeah. around the ability to do things like product development, to do things like ideate. I mean, we've developed eight new products all completely remotely, if you think about it. Totally. Those are all developed remotely. It's been a remote company since the beginning. So it works. My particular bias and working style, I, I tend to be a bit more extroverted and I get energy from the people around me. And so that it doesn't work as well for me. 
but I'm willing to accept that there's a, a middle ground. I, I actually, my gut tells me that long term, the model is actually more of a hub model. I think that's how most of us will end up and accept that, yeah, we're not going back five days a week, but you need to be affiliated with the hub over the course of time. And so we basically have eight or nine hubs around the world where we're largely hiring. And I think that's the longer term arc of it. And does there feel like some level of attendance at a local hub that would feel right to you in that future world? I think three days a week is reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. And for you, is there a reason why the system tends to work better with your direct reports in person, just personally speaking? You know, I think I spent a lot of time thinking about how different being a CEO is versus running a function. And running a function, you know, it's somewhat contained in terms of the system of that function. And so a lot of your interaction is actually within that function. The majority of it is. As CEO, it's actually not. It's much more cross. And so I need the cross silo communication by the nature of that, yeah. of that role. And so there's a difference, I think, between running a function and running a, being a CEO, both in terms of how you manage people actually is one part of it, but also how you let them be more self-sufficient, how they run their function. Like our support organization is entirely remote. It is world-class. I do mm-hmm. not worry about it at all. Mm-hmm. The guy that runs support, he's in the office you know, as much as I do. So anytime I have an issue, I, I know who to talk to. So I think it's more about the role. Yeah, that makes sense. If you could describe company building to an alien, <laughs> how would you describe it? Company building? Uh, it splits in two, uh, fundamentally. It's about, first and foremost, establishing a thesis with respect to how a market's going to unfold, and then a very clear articulation of your mission against that thesis. That's the first part. It's essentially an articulation of strategy. Hey, I think that there's going to be a shortage of water in the world based on what's happening. Therefore, my mission is to build a bottling company that does X, Y, and Z. Like That's the thesis. And that thesis has to be sound uh, and lots of things we can ideate on to get there. And then the second part is actually the operational building of the machine to attack it. And I think they're very different things. And that's the thing that's very cool about tech in particular is because the markets move so quickly that thesis has to be corrected often. But the second part of it is how do you get the vessel, the lead to cash machine, the sale to renewal machine, the support machine working in harmony in support of that mission. So it really breaks into those two things. If you do those do things correctly, you can build any kind of business. Where do you think most people get it wrong in that dichotomy? Well, that one's easy. It's the strategic positioning. I mean, there are lots of examples of it. But like, if you get that market thesis wrong, no amount of execution is going to help you. That's where people struggle. I think that's it's art and science. It's being in the information data flow to be able to de- detect like what, what's going to work and what's going to not. Actually, I always think of Mike Clavel at, uh, I think he's at Stripe now. He runs, Stripe, yeah. runs, runs sales at Stripe. And our paths crossed at VMware. And I was talking to him one day and he, uh, he talked about where he'd been. He'd been at like, I think it was at Sun and then BEA, then VMware, then Amazon, then Stripe. And I go like, what is going on here? Like, this is not right. Like, yeah. you're batting a thousand on all these companies. And his point was, it's actually not that complicated. Once you're in the sales role, you can see what's going to be, what's happening in the world. And you use that as the basis to determine, okay, which companies have the thesis right with respect to what they're trying to build. And then if that's right, then we can execute it. And can you clarify why you think that being in the sales role, in his case, is helpful for him to identify the market? It's being in the information data flow, honestly. That's what does the, that mean? Just being, you have to be in the data flow of what people are talking about, what they're describing as their issues, what they are considering, what they are not considering. And if you're just listening, it's not that hard, truthfully. And I think in the sales role, 
you can attack it in one of two ways. You can try and sell somebody something, mm. or you can listen to what they're describing and then frame what you're trying to sell against what they're describing, which is how successful selling helps uh, happens. But in the process, you are learning as much as they are. You're learning from every interaction yeah. what's happening in the market. You know, I think that's one of the reasons I'm so fixated on being in the sales motion and sales data flow. You know, I think it's hard to be CEO of a company like ours in markets that move as quickly as ours if you are not disciplined about being in the information flow. You know, I do. My internal quota that I've set for my team is two to three customer calls a day. Every day. Every day. And that is to hear what's going on so that you can make the call of where the business needs to go next. Yeah, you, you hear, again, it goes, it's those two categories. It's what's the position do you want to establish in the market? Are we in the bullseye? Hey, what's it going to be three years from now, five years from now? Do I need to tweak how we're talking about what we're doing, how we're aligning our, our employees against a mission that matches the bullseye of where that market is going? And that's 90% of it. Then the other 10% or 15% is about you hear what is and is not working within your company <clears throat> when you engage with customers and they complain to you. Uh, and you need both those two things. But I think the first one is the positioning one. And I think that's what folks like us nerd out about. It's just cool. You can see where the market's going and that's like a drug. Throughout the course of your career, would you say you've always been in the data flow? Meaning, do you make career decisions based on being in the flow, this slipstream of information, and then make decisions based on that? Yeah. I generally, I think most people when faced with the same information make the same decision, generally speaking. I think that's Give me an example. Maybe a couple of companies ago we did, we, I got into VMware through a company called SpringSource, which ultimately created Cloud Foundry, which is a platform as a service technology. It was pretty clear, that was 2010, it was pretty clear that People were struggling with the complexity of deploying applications and you know, just, it's just too hard. You had the app server movement come and be a thing. It was just too hard. What people, if you listen to them, they just wanted to be able to deploy an application and consume a bunch of app services and not worry about how they were configured. Like That's what you wanted. You could just see it. And so you hear that often enough that you go, okay, well, let me play that back to you. And, you, and every person you speak to goes, yeah, you just describe what my problem is. Like, can you build that? And so you then set out to build something that solves that problem, became the platform as a service notion. And it's not very complicated. It seems very unattainable, but it's really not. I think it's maybe the conclusion. You know, if you were in a different domain, if you were in sports, you would be able to see it. Hey, you know what? I'm watching why the Warriors are getting beat by the Lakers. If I'm an expert in that domain, I'm sure everybody that plays that game at a high level can see why they're losing. And you actually, you would largely do the same things to correct it. We happen to traffic in a very niche part of the information uh, market, which is the infrastructure market. If I listen to what's happening in the market, I would have the same response that a coach of an NBA, NBA player would have with respect to their market. Said another way, like taking the sports analogy a step further, anybody that watches baseball has known that baseball is not very engaging for Correct. three and a half hours. Correct. And so if you're even a moderate fan, everyone probably would have come to a similar conclusion that we should somehow accelerate this game. Correct. Right? Correct. Yeah, it's particularly when their gate receipts are the predominant way that they generate revenue in baseball, which is different from other sports, they have to solve that problem. Yeah, that's a really good example. Like we could figure out the solve would be the same for many of us. Not just, you have to be... Obviously, there's a certain level of professional knowledge required to be able to make the perfect decision, but yeah. most of us will make the same decision. I've listened to and read pretty much everything you've ever done, and I'm like, <laughs> that's, God, that's this, this guy either is 
a venture capitalist stuck in an operator's body or is a masochist and a reluctant operator that keeps falling ass first into this thing. Do you have a perspective on that? Because you talk a lot like a venture capitalist in the way that you view markets. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to have told you that. Yeah, I can't help but see things in frameworks and patterns, which maybe is what VCs do. I like the team sport of business building. I think there's no way around it. There's something viscerally satisfying about business building in the same way that team sports are satisfying. And that's what's always interested to me. I, I have not really been interested in the VC. I spent some time as a EIR at one of the firms down the street. And I think it actually reinforced that for me, which was this stuff was way too slowly for my taste and it's way too indirect. The academic part of it's kind of interesting to me, but you sort of, you crack that pretty quickly. You go, yeah, you can, I always, I, I view markets as sort of like as if you were drawing them on a whiteboard there, you know, there's a core and then there's adjacencies and you can have spend categories associated with them. And then you kind of can kind of basically say like, this market is this big, this market's that big. You can visualize them as they're transitioning for various reasons. I mean, the transition to clouds is a good example. You can see how those, you can almost see them on a, on a board. It's a physical thing you can see. They're transitioning from old world to new world. And that is probably how VCs look at it. But I think being a VC is a very lone wolf kind of a way to spend your time and never really appealed to me. But don't you think, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're in the seat. Don't you think that the job that you do today as the CEO of a large meaningful public company is also kind of a lone wolf job, meaning not in the traditional sense, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, it is a very, yeah. I, in fact, I had a, <laughs> it's funny you say that I got a call from a guy this weekend who's the CEO of a venture back company and, and his opening line was just how isolating it feels. You just wanted to talk to somebody about it. And I think that is true, but it's in a different way. It's isolating in that the role is isolated. You have no peers as CEO and you have to figure out ways to counteract that. But the value creation is very clear. You know, we win as a team, lose the team. I'm, I'm more like the coach than the dictator. And there's immense satisfaction that, that comes from that. I think you still have to find people within your orbit and make it feel less isolating. But it's not like being a VC in that that's very indirect. I can go and be in the information flow and do five briefings in a, in a week or 10 briefings in a week and know I moved the dial for the organization. And I just made a bunch of people a lot of money and made a customer really, really happy. Like that's incredibly satisfying. Yeah. And it's different. It's different. You mentioned counteract that feeling. Like what do you do to counteract that? I think you just gave one example, which is what happened with one of your friends who called you to yeah. commiserate. I wonder, what do you do? You have to find people that you could talk to is the short answer. And, and you have to figure out where that is. My wife's tired of me talking about it, so she won't. She's not, not that interested mm-hmm. in, in hearing it. Yeah, so obviously, this is my first time being CEO. I've been at it for about seven years, but I've been in leadership roles in other companies that became pretty big companies. And it was a real eye-opener for me, actually, how isolating it was. And, and When you were watching the CEOs, you mean? I had no idea, actually, right. when I was watching the CEOs, yeah. quite how isolating it was. As a CEO, I had to find people that I could engage with re- rhythmically. And so... In fact, some of the folks that you've had on your podcast previously are folks that we've collaborated for years uh, in these kinds of peer group kind of conversations, and we kind of meet rhythmically. I think that's something that 
most people should seek out, particularly at the earlier stage. And there are lots of these, whether it's YPO or there's 10XEO, there are sort of these small peer groups of people that you meet rhythmically with and you can talk to people in a way that you can't normally because you can share what's going on in your business, what's going on in theirs. That's key. And then the second part is finding people that are genuinely mentors to you. And everybody, everybody needs mentors that you can call up. And sometimes that comes from board members. I think as you get bigger, it's actually harder to get that from board members unless there really are current operators. So I think those are the two categories. One is sort of how do you find these peer groups? And I certainly have some of those. And the second one is there are a bunch of folks, just some of the people you know, your podcast even, who act in that capacity for me. And yeah, you just need someone to talk things through with. The reality is it is isolating. That's just the nature of it, but you can make it a lot better by seeking out. And I'm curious, when you talk things through with, I don't know who you're calling from, past guests of the show, I have no idea. Maybe Clayville. Let's just use a stupid example. He's not a CEO, but whatever. When you're talking to some of your peers, is it more tactical or therapeutic in nature. <laughs> no, I'll give you a really good example. I caught up with the guys once, and I was like, "I was like, how who you, can I know? Like, who? No, who? I, I, I won't mention who they are. Okay, okay. It doesn't matter. Okay. But because there's more than one. But sure. one of them I caught up. I was like, "Can I just ask you a question? Like, how do you manage your time? Because you realize there are so many of these unstructured problems that you don't run into until you're a CEO, and you go, hey." At this scale, you could be doing whatever you want, but how do you actually do it? What's the biggest leverage that you get from how you structure your time? It's those kinds of almost like philosophical things that are the most helpful. Sometimes it's a tactical, hey, we're going to have an earnings call. You know, any ideas on what we should, how we should frame things? It's sometimes that, but it's less often. It's more about like this unstructured problem solving that <clears throat> you're faced with all the time because there's no peer group to really walk it, work it through with. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. This idea of the way that you approach problems through a systems orientation, have you been that way since you were a kid? <laughs> Probably. Like were your did you were your, are your parents that way? Like I don't, did you I don't did you think so. like was that learned? Like when did you realize that this is the way you are and not everybody actually thinks this the way? The system view? Yeah. I just thought everybody thought that way. Yeah. That's a good question. And I, I, I never really thought about it. It didn't seem weird to me. It surprises me when people don't see it is maybe the inverse. It's actually become one of the real hiring tells for me. One of the unstructured questions that you may have picked up on because I mentioned it in one of the podcasts. There was this really good story in the New York Times about 15 years ago called Can You Pass a CEO Test? It was the Corner Office series. I think it was the very first Corner Office, which is like a column they do. And it was asking a, a guy that was obviously had some kind of hedge fund or not a hedge fund, but like a like private equity fund. Hey, how do you interact with the CEOs on the companies you work with? And the article is called How Do You Pass a CEO Test? And the basic question was, hey, if I were to give you 10 bucks, if you're talking to a CEO, I ask you to increase revenues by 10% next year, where would you put that 10 bucks? And you're implicitly asking, what are the levers of that business? What's, how does, like, you're, you're requiring someone to, to describe to you in a systematic way, in a very simple way, how that business works and where the biggest point of leverage is. And that was kind of the litmus test for his interviews, which always struck me. I was like, well, of course you would ask that, right? Because to answer that question, you have to have a system-oriented thinking approach, which is, okay, well, a company's comprised of these levers. This is where I could put the chip. And I don't have to be talking in the language of that business. I can describe it to you in plain English. And I think that is how I think about hiring a lot. That's one of the hiring tells we use. I look for that system thinking orientation because one of my learnings is that startup companies go through phases so quickly that you have to re-architect the systems all the time. And people that can't re-architect the systems through systems thinking are a are really challenged. So it's incredibly prized as it turns out in the startup ecosystem because of that nature. And so uh, 
I guess I sort of fell into a role which happens to suit my natural orientation. I always have this this view, actually, just for what it's worth, because it's been on my mind. I think of tree rings, right? It's like you think of when a tree is small, the rings are really, really, really close together because it's not growing that fast every season. As a tree gets bigger, the rings are actually further apart if you were to cut the tree. And it's a good metaphor for company building. Things don't change very often when they're a big company because the system's pretty well defined. In the early stages, you got to reinvent, 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 reinvent. And it, you, we have to re-architect the systems for each phase the company goes through. And I think that's how I think about, like, visually, the system of company building is that it's about a phase shift notion and system redesign for each of those phases. And you just need system thinkers to do it. Yeah. The alternative that I see quite frequently in startups that are growing quickly is, as opposed to hiring for a systems thinker, they will hire for, can I get a person that can get this job done for the next 18 to 24 months. And then if they can evolve to the next system, amazing. Otherwise, we'll just hire the person that's a better fit for that revenue range and system. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is conventional wisdom. Yeah. Uh, It's one where I differ from the VC point of view. I would say some of my best folks are really young that have grown way faster than you would have ever expected because they have the system thinking orientation. It's not entirely true though, because I think there's a difference between administrators and builders and you can find them at big companies too. So what you're really looking for someone is who has that building orientation, not the administration orientation. So if you were to tell me, hey, you've hit a billion dollars in revenue, now you need to hire the person that can run a billion dollar sales organization, I'd say, mm, maybe. If that person is a builder by nature, yeah, I would agree with you, and we'll have to figure out how to test for that. If they're an administrator within an organization, they're not going to be successful in the unstructured world of startups. I'd rather take a bet on someone that hasn't done that yet. So yeah, I mean, I think that's a good example of just VC conventional wisdom, and yeah. they've seen patterns that I haven't, and I get that. I have a pretty strong bias, and I get that for people that have something to prove. Just to put a bow on your point about the builders versus the administrators, what I love about high-growth companies, and kind of back to my original question of how would you describe it to aliens, one of the cheat codes of these companies for builders is that there's unlimited headroom to build, because there's infinite problems that need to be solved and not enough people to ever actually do those problems and especially not enough people that are in the data flow. Meaning when you hire someone for the next system, it takes them six to nine months just to reorient to this data flow. And at that point, you may have transcended the the problem that you had previously. Yeah, it's a a really, really hard one. I think what's what's not obvious, like these scaling companies, it's not about one or two decisions that get made like this one. You know, maybe it's a people thing. It's about like 10 a day that get made. And I think that's what's also not obvious is you have to get 80% of them right every day. Otherwise, you can fall on the wrong side of growth. Going back to Clayville, he has this orientation from Amazon around one-way doors and two-way doors in decision-making. I wonder if you're making, let's just say, 10 decisions a day and eight of them need to be right, okay? I wonder, do eight of them need to be right? Or is there one that really needs to be right? There's generally one that needs to really needs to be right, but there are eight that if you get them wrong, you will cause real damage to yourself. It won't be fatal. And a lot of times it's cultural damage. It's not even stuff that you can necessarily see. It's like, yeah, I'll give you an example. I spent some time at GitHub and what really struck me was the culture of allowing anonymous questions to be asked at any point of anybody. That's just an example of decision was, should you let that happen inside a company or you shouldn't? Like that's an example if, you what do go, you mean? There's a town hall. Anybody can lob in a question. Hey, what about 
what do we think about this? What do we think about yeah. that? But it's anonymous. Yeah. And I don't get to say see who's on their side of it. We actually had that come up years ago. And my answer was like, that's a good example of a, of a decision. Actually, it might be a one-way door decision that could be really, really damaging or it just could be culturally damaging either way. So, you know, the answer is no. You can ask whatever you like. I'll answer whatever you like, but you have to identify yourself. It's a good example of just like, kind of a decision that comes up all the time, all the time. It seems innocuous at the time, but if you fast forward three months, you realize, actually, I've created a real cultural crater by allowing that to happen that I have to dig myself out of. That's sort of what I mean. Like lots of these little decisions, you may not think of them as big decisions at the time, but it turns out they are. Yeah. Do you get decision fatigue? Yeah. And I think, again, this comes to the job of CEO. It's about leverage, ultimately. So the there are two ways to do that. You can be the decision maker for all these things. And in the early days, you are. There's no way around that. What you're trying to do, we decompose any company into four systems. There's you know, financial plan, people plan. That drives the product plan. That drives the go-to-market plan. And that reinforces the financial plan. So it's kind of circular. If you think about that, there's a financial, people, product, go to market. Those are the four. So you're trying to find leaders that you can drop into those things to close those systems for you so you're not making all the decisions anymore. So in that sense, no, you're not really getting decision fatigue because somebody else is making those decisions if they're competent. So at steady state, that's what a company looks like. And we talk about kind of systems within systems, obviously within the go to market system, there's the lead to cash system, there's the sale to renewal system, there's, you know, there's a few systems, subsystems within it, but you're hiring someone to close that system for you. In the early days, you don't have those people. And so, yeah, it's very, 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 very tiring. I mentioned this one when we first spoke. I think people don't, I don't think they quite appreciate how fatiguing it can be and how hard it is to do these venture-backed businesses. And they seem great from the outside, but there's a phase until you get to this more mature moment where it's incredibly difficult, you know. Good example, the people that call me on weekends, like the person I was talking to, like they're fried because it is hard. They're making every decision because they don't have these people yet in place. So you have to figure out how to like get breakaway scale to allow you to put these people in place financially that you can attract them and have them be competent and take some of that fatigue off yourself. One thing that strikes me is you started out in finance, right? True. And then you went to product management. Yep. Then you were the VP of marketing at Hortonworks after... VMware and Microsoft. Then you went to be the VP of marketing at GitHub. And then you went to Greylock as an EIR for nine months. And then uh, you've been the CEO of HashiCorp since basically June of 2016, when the company was tiny, sub 50 people, barely had any revenue. As you're making these jumps, in the back of your head, are you looking at your CEOs thinking, I want that job one day. No, I, I always laugh. When you deconstruct how many companies I've worked at, it's a lot. I've actually worked at more than that. I worked at Account Temps for a while. I worked at Robert Half International doing temp work. There's always a reason for that because I was balancing my wife's career at the same time as mine. And she had a much more serious career than I did for a long time. And that was just the way it worked and it was perfect for us. So I had to move around a bunch of times as our life caused us to move. And so I had to quit jobs and find another one and quit jobs, and find another one. Didn't bother me, done that lots of times. But that's why I've ended up at a bunch of places. And I never had any interest in being CEO. I really didn't. I was always really interested in the general management function. I thought that, yeah, the combination of product and go to market, it's just very, 
it's viscerally satisfying. I think there's something about the team aspect of it that I'm really interested in. There's something about the mental game of the market mapping that I was really interested in. And that led me just to do all those jobs you described. And I really, I, what I was trying to do was actually get a more breadth of skills and pick up the breadth of skills along the way so that I'd be the most competent business runner at some point in my career. So I thought, hey, I should do some time in finance. I did some time in product development, sometime in go-to-market and marketing, and obviously a bunch of HR and people stuff in there. So I thought, yeah, I was pretty well ready to be CEO if I wanted to, but I had no interest in being CEO. Uh, it's a very, very difficult job. So no is the short answer. I didn't look at I didn't look at it as being CEO. I looked at it as like a skills building exercise so I could be competent. And then I moved around a bunch of times for my wife and that was just the way it worked out. You're supposed to enjoy yourself. <laughs> That's the cardinal goal, isn't it? If you're looking too far down the road, you're not enjoying yourself. I mean, uh, some of the jobs you mentioned were incredibly fun, but I wasn't thinking 20 years down the road. I was thinking this is a really good way to develop some skills. This is really, really fun. Uh, let's keep doing what we're doing. And then you know, happenstance cause things to change. You mentioned that your wife and your jobs were different in terms of like you were basically following her yeah. career at that point. Yeah. Now you've been at what is HashiCorp, a 2,500 plus pers- employee person company, large public company for those that haven't heard, it's kind of like a sneaky, badass infrastructure company that you would only know if you're in the information flow of generally like yep. somewhat nerdy stuff. But they, <laughs> this company just powers so much that we use every single day that you never hear of. And I think you like it that way. We do like it that way. Um, my point is like a huge rippling company at this point. Was the transition, if that happened, was that kind of strange? Like, oh shit, like now... No, it wasn't. I mean, I think... Um, you don't have to answer that if you no, don't I always think it. Actually, I always think of it in terms of sine waves. When we talk to a lot of people about like managing multiple careers inside a, a partnership, I always think of it in terms of sine waves. There are moments where you basically, they're inverted sine waves. Like when she was full board traveling to China all the time, I couldn't be, right? So I had to do a job where that wasn't a requirement. When she was doing that, maybe 15 years ago, when my kids were small, like you know, I was one that had to leave work at three o'clock in the afternoon mm-hmm. to make sure we got home, and that was just totally cool. And then there were times where I got busier and she backed off, and I think that's the nature of trade-offs and compromise you make in successful relationships. And it's been really, really good for us. It's been really, really great. So when I ended up doing the Hasha Group thing, she was super encouraging of it. She was the one that said, like, you should go do that. And I was like, I don't really want to be CEO. It's I don't know if I have it in me. I've done, this would be the third company from zero. I don't think I want to do this again. And she's like, well, you're going to do something. Why not do it with these guys who are really super smart? You can build something of value. It'll be fun. So she pushed me to do it and, and she has since actually backed off her, her wow. work to allow it to happen. Why didn't you want to do it? You've started two companies from zero, basically. Well, I joined two. At zero. Yeah, yeah. That does, yeah. yeah, you started at, yeah. yeah. What did you take away from that that gave you the trepidation on number three? It's just hard. It's physically hard. Uh, I think that, that was the mean? real reason. It's just, you can't do these things halfway. And well, obviously we get a lot of satisfaction from what we do because it's intellectually interesting. But it, there's a trade-off. It's, you're giving up other things as well. I mean, you just know what it takes, I think is maybe the conclusion. You go, do I really want to sign up to do that? Or do I want to go work in a bigger company and just be a little more chill? I think what you realize is you're kind of not really wired to work in that bigger company very easily. And so you should probably go do this. But it took a bit of persuasion 
but it's hard. You know, I think just to put it but very, very practically, not obvious from the outside, travel, what, 40% of the time, something like that, certainly 35%. Like that's a lot of nights away. It's a lot of, a lot of nights in hotels, you know, the Marriott folks are happy to see me, but that's just what it takes. And you got to decide if you're really willing to sign up to do that. Yeah. And actually, I'll, I'll give the caveat to you because I think there's a difference. Zero to 100 is a particular and peculiar thing to go from zero to 100 in revenue. And uh, after 100, it's different. Even after 50, it's different. We used to say that if you can get a company to 30 million, it'll go to 100. So really, like for the zero to 30, 30 to 50, 50 to 100, like those things are very, very difficult to do. And very few companies get there. Once you get to 100, the percentage of companies that get beyond that is actually probably quite a lot bigger. Well, I think going back to your tree metaphor, the rings are much correct further apart at the early stage. Is that right? No, they're very close together. Close together at the early stage. Like things are changing so much more quickly at the early stage that keeping up with that rate of change is unbelievably difficult. I think Joe from Loom said it really well where humans grow linearly and companies grow exponentially. That's true. You know, That's true. like uh, like if you go from, let's just say, 1 to 10 million, okay, just your revenue grew 10x. So in a lot of cases, a lot of other things are going to have to grow proportional to that revenue growth, which is exponential. You, if I grow now at my age, if I get 2x better from here, like in the rest of my life, I'd be a superhero. You know what I mean? The yeah. point that I'm trying to make is that it's very difficult for humans implicitly to keep up with the rate of change that high growth companies go through. Certainly there's change. There's also, there's the reality of responsibility. I think this is the thing that makes infrastructure companies particularly unique. I mean, as you alluded to, our products are in the runtime path of stuff you use every day, like every day. You swipe your credit card, yep. You turn on Zoom, yep. You make a stock trade, yep. That's what our products do. You don't see it. You know, it's the plumbing for how it all happens. And there's an enormous responsibility that comes with that. Like, you know, as, as some of our customers like to say, like, for this particular application, if it goes down, we won't file a support issue. You'll see it on CNN. Like, that's the reality of what these products do. And, and so there's a real responsibility that you feel. And at the 30 to 50 to 70 million, that starts to happen. People are putting it into, in the runtime path of these things. And you're just sprinting to make sure you do not let those people down. And I think that it's just the nature of infrastructure. It's, it's just the nature of how it works. On the flip side, at that stage, you've also recruited a lot of people to come and do this with you. Speaking of letting people down, yeah. you don't want to let those people down. Correct. Yeah. You've, you have a responsibility for those people as well. Because in the early days, these B2B companies, a lot of it's about storytelling. It's like, listen, I think the market's going to go this way. If we do this, we can build something valuable together. And you're convincing investors, but you're also convincing customers. And you're also convincing employees. Those are the constituents. And you've convinced a lot of people to come and do this with you. And in my case, a lot of those people had done it with me before. So this was maybe some of them had done it twice before with me. And so they were like, yeah, we'll come do this with you. And obviously it was a huge asset to get things going quickly. But you also know their families and you know the implications of it. So it just takes a slightly different tenor of stress, which is once you get to 100 million, you're like, it's going to be fine. But that earlier- It's not existential anymore. Yeah, You will make payroll. You'll probably make payroll. Yeah. That loneliness in your job, I think is- that weight because the buck stops with you ultimately. I do get the sense from a lot of our founders and CEOs that there is an immense burden 
of being the top of that food chain, if you will, that you never get to relinquish yourself from. <laughs> That's true. But, also, but there, are, there are lots of positives to it, too. It's sort of, it's a really unique role in that you get to set a direction and say, we're going in this direction. And you could pick that to be wherever you like. And there's something that is very satisfying about being right when you get that right. And I think at different stages, it has different pressures. It turns out when you get to you know, a few hundred million, you can actually start to construct the role in the way that gives you energy and sort of let go of some of the things that detracts your energy. And that takes a deliberate structuring of how you spend your time. You, you know what? I'm going to spend my time doing these five things because I have a particular superpower there and I'm going to compensate by having somebody else do those things yeah. for me that I was maybe doing previously because now we're big enough that I can afford it. And so in that sense, it actually does get easier, truthfully. And that sensation you felt going through it, you kind of get to the other side and you're like, okay, now I can construct it in a different, in a different way. But I think conversely, when you look at what it takes, you know, I think, again, just to give an insight into it, I was actually, I had Jen Tejada on my all hands last week. Mm. She's a friend of mine. Our kids go to school together. She's and so great. I was like, hey, you want to come and talk? And it turns out like it took me like four months to get her on my agenda. Why? Because she was in Dublin Web Summit the first time I tried to get her. She was traveling somewhere else the next time. She's traveling somewhere else the next time. And you go like, why you travel all the time? Yeah. Yes. And that's the nature of it. And so once you're at that scale, it actually... It's almost a little bit like being a politician in that you're on all the time. It's it's slightly different different pressures, but that you can manage. And I just, I was talking to one person, (laughs) one CEO of a big public company who said to me, he's like, yeah, this is exhausting. He's also traveling, you know, 40% of the time. And and he goes, you know what? Turns out you and I spent a lot of energy trying to get here. If you look around, there are not that many people looking to take our spot. Once they see what it actually looks like, there's not many people that actually want to do that. I think that's true. A lot of people go, yeah, that would be really, really cool. It is really, really cool. But the day-to-day reality is different than it might seem. And when you first got turned on to the HashiCorp team, Mm -hmm. can you bring me back to like, what was that point in time for you? What was going on in your mind about what could be next? And then what was the state of the business? So the state of the business was uh, Armin and Mitchell and about 20 other people had created some open source projects, which were some of which were getting popular, but there was no revenue. I was hanging out as an EIR. Actually, the best advice someone gave me before I went to be an EIR is they said, I know you're going to be itching to do something else and try and resist that. Stay there long enough until you start to see the patterns. I was like, okay, I'm not sure what you're talking about, but I'll hang out and walk my dogs for a few months and come here. And so I was hanging out as an EIR, and one of the patterns I started to see was- And an EIR, sorry, can you just explain for the audience what that is? Yeah, an EIR is when one of the venture firms says, hey, do you want to come and hang out here? Like a great operator at one of your portfolio companies that you basically want to keep in the 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 ecosystem. And you say, just hang out here. Basically, work with our companies, Correct. build a relationship with these founders and CEOs yep. and stuff. And then if you hit it off with one that you get excited about, well, then that's an easy transition. Or maybe you'll find something else that maybe we can invest in. Yeah, exactly. You're basically on the on the beach. And one of the things I observed was actually the that this is maybe eight or nine years ago. All these companies that were really, really efficient on the go-to-market side were really, really valuable. It turns out, again, just information flow uh, being the thing. Building a product not that 
expensive. Taking it to market is very expensive. And so what's, what's starting to evolve was these really efficient go-to-market mechanisms where you could see companies like Segment and a few others where, hey, it's developer-led, gets into every company, we just go and monetize it at the end. Incredible unit economics out of it. And I'd come out of the Hadoop experience. We helped make Hadoop a thing and the previous company. And it was just so obvious how expensive that model was once it started to scale because you had to hire more salespeople and it's just really, really expensive. And so when I met them, I was like, okay, this is kind of a perfect match. You kind of think of like market model and team is how you think about any opportunity. And you look at the market, okay, this cloud thing feels like probably something there. At the time, yeah, Amazon was just you know a few billion in revenue. It hadn't really, really taken off. The team, you're like, okay, well, these are two of the smartest people I've ever met, like that check. And then the model of this open source model where you could start to envision, hey, high velocity distribution channel, but it's vendor controlled open source so that there's only really one commercial exit for you know stuff that you build around that open source stuff. And so it matched what I, was, what I had seen in terms of like potentially having a very efficient go-to-market model longer term. I'd done a couple of infrastructure companies and a couple of open source companies. And so I think I, you know, I could see how that might work. And I was like, you know what? Market model and team. I like the market. I like the team. The model, yeah, I think will be high efficiency. And so let's just jump in and see what we can do. And from the founder's perspective, because it is very rare to find a HashiCorp at that point that is bursting with potential Mm -hmm. that hasn't flipped the monetization switch on yet, that is looking for a CEO. I wonder, were they looking for a CEO? Like, how did that, because I get asked this all the time (laughs) by great executives that are ready for their next gig that aren't necessarily the founder type that are looking for this company. And I'm like, boy, they rarely exist because if they do exist, number one, usually the founder is really excited to be the CEO of that company. Otherwise, it's probably not working very well, in which case it's going to be painful slog. <laughs> Stuff's all bound together. So, so I'll tell you what actually happened. A second to, uh, I'll give Andy Price the credit. He's, a, he's one of the recruiters. And he and I were talking at the time about a bunch of things he was trying to get me in front of. And after one of our conversations, he's like, have you ever considered being CEO? And I was like, no, I have no interest in being CEO. He goes, I think you should, because I don't think you're going to find these marketing jobs very interesting. But no one would give me a CEO role. They wouldn't. So I think in hindsight, you look at a company like that and go, well, they were just bursting with possibility about to take off. Well, were they? You know, they had a bunch of open source stuff, hadn't monetized anything. They'd been at it for a few years. Easy for me to say in, in retrospect. In hindsight, yes, in, yes. in hindsight, it does look that and way. you weren't qualified for the Series C CEO gig where you've already crossed the 30 million ARR threshold. I was introduced to Armand Mitchell about a year and a half prior by a guy named Robin Vasson, who was a partner at Mayfield. And Robin had been on the company that I did like 12 years before which is how I got to know him. And he's been trying to get me to do a company with him ever since. I was working in product development at the time. And the timing didn't work out, timing didn't work out. And he approached me with this one and said, you got to go meet these guys. So I helped him out for about a year and a half in the background. I was like, I'm not going to do another company. And then I jumped in and we spent the first six months trying to get real clarity on what that mission was, right? The company wasn't generating much revenue, much, if anything. We said, okay, I'm going to declare the mission against the backdrop of what I know is happening in the market. Like, let's declare the mission and then realign the product roadmap and the product development process and our value prop to that mission, which is different from what they were doing before. It was actually that lock into the mission, which has just created this instant 
shifted trajectory of revenue. You're like, okay, got it. If that's what we're going to do, we can go. They were not going down that path previously. So it was almost like you'd come across a company that had a lot of potential, but no real direction in a way that that was repeatable. And that combination is sort of, you know, what made it go. From their perspective, a company is a founder's baby. This is your blood, sweat, and tears. And there's years probably before that point that never gets talked about of toiling and toiling away, trying to find product market fit. In this case, let's just define that as there's a bunch of people using it in the open source community. Okay. Yeah. Were they then like, Dave, please, here are the keys. You know, no. how, how, how is that? No. Uh, um, <laughs> they originally said, hey, you're hanging out as an ER. Like, we'd love to come and have you stop being an advisor to us and just come and run the go-to-market side. And I said, you think about it? No, I said, no way. I said that I have this view that a company is nothing more than a, that a group of people aligned around a common idea. You know, that's the Elon Musk phraseology, which I happen to agree with. You can't separate the go-to-market idea from the product idea. It's like the company has to be aligned around a singular point of view. And then the product roadmap reflects that. The go-to-market story reflects that. The ecosystem plan reflects that. And so you can't separate the two. So I was like, I would never go to a company where they say, you know, we'll run products. You just run go-to-market because it, it, that won't work. So I was like, no, I'm good. And eventually they came back and said, well, would you consider being CEO? And, I, and again, I said no. And it took a bunch of arm twisting, which, which ended up happening. But it was really the humility of them that did it for me. I think we both, we all looked at it and said, honestly, I don't really care what seat anybody's in. I just think it would be cool to see this tech reach its potential because you can see it. And Armand and Mitchell are, are like really striking in their humility. I mean, these are 23-year-old guys uh, at the time that had created stuff that was getting downloaded 100,000 times a month. And they were like, they realized that, that they had a particular superpower in building products, but they didn't know how to build a company. And so if it took partnering with someone else to make that company find its, realize its vision, they're like, that's cool with us, which is very rare, uh, very, very rare. It was just a really, really good match. And I think I obviously had the same point of view. I do not care what I see. I mean, like I have nothing to prove to anybody other than myself. And so I didn't care. I just didn't think you could separate the, the roles. And that's kind of how the conversation went. They were like, okay, sure. Why don't you come and do it? Yeah. I mean, you thought it had to be centralized. It has to be centralized. Yeah. And it was already decentralized at that point. And if you were going to come in and do it, you had to be the centralizer, if you yeah, will. Yeah, you couldn't. You have to have a singular mission is the issue. And I think that the tendency for startups is they build a really, again, it's a philosophy thing. And I get not everybody will agree with the philosophy, but- I'm old enough to have strong opinions on it, which is you have to have a point of view around a market. So we don't build products and then take them to market. We build a point of view and then we build a product. So a lot of startups say, hey, I built a product. It's got me to 3 million in revenue. Like now I want to bring an operator to help take this to the next scale. I would say, okay, well, great. But that operator has to have control of the whole thing. You can't just be like, well, now going, you built the go-to-market side, I'll build the product side. I just don't think that works because... You can't divorce the two. And actually, don't think you're product market fit until a lot later than that anyway. So it's a head fake. I think that was a pretty good description of the way that you think of markets and products intertwining. Do you have a framework on how startups and markets generally intertwine? Like, do you have a thought process around that? I think it's it's the same. It's, well, a couple, a couple of different elements of it. The first of those is, I love Frank Slootman's quote that uh, markets are fights. 
because only the government gets to print money. The rest of us have to take it from somebody else, which means if, if you're a startup, you are explicitly taking money from somebody else for your product to get to be successful. If I'm going to pay you a dollar, it's coming out of someone else's pocket because I can only have a dollar to pay somebody. Startups exist against the backdrop of having to like fight their way into relevance. So you have to have a point of view around how that market's going to evolve and change that gives you the slipstream opportunity to build something. So I think that's the fundamental truism is like you have to have a market point of view and then build something that is a uh, a manifestation of value prop against how that market's going to progress. Point number two, you have to get to a certain revenue scale before that thesis is proved correct. And that revenue scale is not 10 million bucks. It's probably not even 15. It might be 30 right, in our world. So I think there's a lot of head fakes. So one is the market thesis. The second one is like, how do startups become relevant? Well, you have to prove product market fit and we think about it in terms of phases, zero to 10 is a phase, 10 to 30 is a phase, 30 to 50 is a phase, 50 to 100 is a phase, and there are distinct phases. I tell the story that for the first 10 or $15 million of revenue that we did, like the inside sales people sat outside my door. So I could hear every conversation they were having because- So you could be in the data flow. Yes, because we did not, until then, you didn't know whether you'd actually found product market fit. You wanted to hear how people react to it you know, every single day so you can hear it. And then once you hit 30 million, yeah, then you probably will get to 100. And th- so I think that's the second vector. First is like the positioning f- framework. The second one is like the scale framework and not head faking yourself into thinking, yeah, we really got product market fit. Now we're at 10 million. You don't. Yeah. How long did it take you before you had your first oh shit moment? You know, I think everybody has the oh shit moment sooner than they think it will happen. Whether that's an operator that comes in and is like, oh, there's still a lot of things wrong, you know, or whether that's a venture capitalist who invests and usually it's the first board meeting, you know, where they're like, oh, how long did it take for you? So I think every operator is different. And I'd done it a couple of times before. And number two, I'd run all, I had exposure to every function in the company so that when it was going, truthfully, we didn't get that much wrong in the early days, financial plan, people plan, product plan, go to yeah. market plan. So operationally, there it, we were pretty buttoned up pretty early. So it wasn't that. It wasn't someone else coming in externally. The things that kept me up at night was the customer stuff. And you start to realize like just how profoundly important your stuff was becoming. Meaning the responsibility that you yeah. felt towards your customers. Yeah. Then you're like, whoa, are we really ready for this? And Like we could put Netflix down type thing. Yeah, way worse than that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't worry if it was Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's much more important stuff than that. Like and we won't be able to process people's payroll or finances when they swipe their credit card type thing. Yeah, that kind of thing. Or there are more serious use cases than that for sure. For, for sure. Which isn't it funny because everyone in the company is dreaming of these moments of landing these customers, yeah. getting the deal, deploying it. Then it starts to get real. It gets real. It's, it's a very weird double-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah, it, get, it gets really real. And uh, but it's also why we like infrastructure. I think that's the, the takeaway. It's this sort of subgroup of people that go, yeah, it is cool that I know how that's working. And if not for us, it wouldn't work that way. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I think for us, it was between like the 30 million and 70 million as you were just kind of getting your feet under you going, whoa, this stuff is really starting to go. And it, did you know it's being used for this use case? Like, I was like, I had no idea. Yeah. And I think that's when it hits home. Was there anything that served as a catalyst for you to gain the confidence or lose some of the reluctance to be like, okay, I'm going to go do this job? I know it's never a moment where you wake up in the middle of the night in the aha, but 
what pushed you over the edge? Because you know so well what it is. You know what I mean? You know how hard it is <laughs> to be like, okay, I'm going to do this and the sacrifice is going to be immense and I'm, I'm, I'm still going to do it. I, you know, you think, you think about like the things that motivate you. Ultimately, it's competition, I think is what it, I think that's what chips you eventually. You're like, you know what? I'm right. And I'm going to prove I'm right. Like it, that's ultimately what I think the catalyst becomes for you to do these things. You go, I think this is how the market's going to play out. And that's satisfying to me. It's satisfying to me to be proven right that, yeah, you can see it. It's like being a tactician in a contest. You're like, I can see, I'm going to make a bet that's going to play this way. And I want to see that be right. And no one else can see it because it doesn't matter to anybody else. But you, you know, you're like, yeah, I think it's going to play out this way. And I think if you go back to the other jobs I've done previously, that's always been the motivation. So I got involved in the you know, platforms of service market. You're like, yeah, this is how it's going to go. Turns out, yeah, that's how it went. The big data market, yeah, that's how it went. Like, and, there's, and even GitHub, it's like, yeah, that's how it went. I think that's- the We also got to make sure you pick the right product and the right company in that market. Correct. But I, back to my point, you pick the market thesis and then you have to operationally execute against it. Like, would you say Hortonworks, as an example, right market, wrong product? It's interesting. I did, I did a presentation on this for a bunch of CEOs. Yes, it was the right product and the right market for a time, but it did not evolve fast enough mm -hmm. as the cost of storage on cloud came down. So you basically, if you think about like the big data yeah. market, yeah, yeah. it's fascinating to, again, just logically and analytically to look at it. The cost of storage of like EMC SAN plus storage software was so expensive. And as more and more data started to get produced in the world, it just overwhelmed that, yeah. that data storage medium. Now Hadoop came along and said, hey, run that on commodity hardware with commodity software on top. And that storage cost goes down by a factor of 10. And that was correct. Yeah. It turned out, about a few years later, cloud came about, and actually the storage cost on cloud is a factor of 10 less than commodity hardware that you might run on-prem, and so that was cheaper. If Hadoop had been running on cloud, it would have benefited from that. Yeah. The fact that it wasn't was the gap. So it wasn't that it was, in my view, the wrong tech. And I talked to Bob Mowgli about this back in 2014, obviously, as we're going after the same market as Snowflake was getting going. It was not the wrong bet. It was right. It just did not evolve, and I think it goes back to being in the information flow. CEO's job is to be in the information flow. So that's just to put a point on that. I and can I put another point on yeah. that? Bob Mugler used to say was, because people used to ask him, can you go on-prem? Can you make this product on-prem? And he said, you will go to the cloud before I ever go on-prem. I actually think there's a management construct which is worth talking about, and it's about latter time horizons. I th actually, using the Hortonworks example, I actually do think that it could have played out differently. I mean, let's put it in perspective. Hortonworks Cloudera generates a billion dollars in revenue today, so it worked out okay. Like, I think people do forget that, yeah, it actually turned out to be a pretty big business. But it's about being in the information flow. And I think this goes back to the CEO job. You know, you have to be in the information flow because my job is three years out. Fundamentally, are we in the right market? Is our company operationally set up? But my time horizon is three years out. The VP of marketing, 18 months out. VP of products, probably 18 months out. The CRO, maybe 12 months out. The salesperson, 90 days. So it's that laddering of time horizons. You have to force yourself and run that discipline of when I'm talking to customers, yeah, I'm trying to help close stuff, but I'm really listening for, are we positioned right for the next three years, three years, three years? And if you lose that anger <laughs> and you're that like 
kinetic energy around being right about that stuff, you miss things like these transitions to cloud. There's a similar transition to edge that's been going on for the last little bit. Turns out we're pretty well positioned for edge. Why? Because we have a multi-year view way out that means we'll yeah. be fine in the edge world. So just an example. Do you find yourself, this is a weird question, but do you find yourself sometimes lacking empathy when you're living in a world that's three <laughs> years out and others are living in a incongruent 100%. Time scale? 100%. Does that question make sense? Yeah. I worked for Paul Moritz for a little bit. Well, you're like, you don't get it, you well, know? And it's like, no, my job's not to get it. Like, yeah. that's not... Sorry, go ahead. Paul Moritz had this view... Who's Paul Moritz? Paul Moritz was the CEO of VMware. Okay, yeah. And before that, he was the number two guy at Microsoft uh -huh. before Balmer became in. I'm a huge fan of his. He's like a rock star figure. Always the smartest guy in the room, but like most understood dude. He said, you know, these transitions are both more profound than you expected and take longer than you expected. Because when you're in the information flow, it's like it's so obvious how this is going to play Customers out. need it right now. Yeah, and it just takes longer than yeah. than you might think for them to see what is very obvious because you're living in that world. So yeah, is there a lack of empathy? No, you just have to bridge it. You go like, I know how this is going to go. And actually, it's super neat. One of my favorite parts of the customer games that we do is you're not a vendor to them for these big companies because you know what this looks like. And they go, just please tell us what to do. Don't let us screw it up. Once you flip to that kind of a conversation, it's just like such a satisfying relationship with your customers. They go, please just tell us how to do this because you've seen this. You've seen this in people that are way ahead of us. Just tell us how to do that. And that is where the really satisfying relationships come from. Like I was with the CIO of one of the biggest banks last Monday and they were saying, you are one of our most important vendors. You really are. And we love working with you guys. We're like, we're rooting for you every time because we have that relationship with them. And I think that's what we aspire to. And that's how you bridge the empathy gap. You flip from being like, hey, it's obvious to you, like to being, hey, let's talk about the journey to get to maturity that we can all see. And they need us to play that role, which is kind of neat. What do most people think about your job that you would disagree with? They think it's super I mean, it's the obvious stuff. They think you, you know, get invited to the nice venture yeah, capital stuff. You get all the good stuff. You and get it's to cool. fly on the nice stuff. You get to eat at the nice places. Yeah. And obviously, that is. Which is true. That is true, but you know, I guess pretty old pretty quickly. Um, I don't think they. The nights at the hotel are still just as lonely. Well, they're not even that lonely because there's always people around. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the fun parts about business travel is salespeople are great. Yeah. I'm like, I'm the world's biggest fan of salespeople. I think salespeople are the engine of any company. And I mean like the individual reps on the ground, yeah. like they are incredibly important people to us and they're fun to travel with. We spend a lot of time with them. No, I think it's the relentlessness of it that they don't see. Uh, actually, I was hosting an event two weeks ago and one of the one of our field CTOs came out to me afterwards. He goes, you know, I just realized like, Everybody wants something from you. Just watching you for the last two hours, everybody wants something from you. Everybody, everybody. It's like, isn't that exhausting? And I think that's the part that they don't see. Yeah, you have to figure out how to construct it where that's not the case. How do you create like the office of the CEO function where that takes some of that off of you? Because people do look at, yeah, it's pretty cool. You get to go to the baseball games and all the stuff. That's also all fine. I'm happy to do that. That's probably the big one. It's just like the energy maintenance that is required. Do you ever get this feeling of guilt like, oh, even when you're doing the nice things, let's just say the baseball games or the yeah. VC CEO <laughs> stuff where you're like, gosh, this is a cool perk of the job, but there's like 50 other things that's like, 
a CPU tax running in the back of your head that you kind of think I should be doing this. Like it almost sucks the soul sometimes away from that stuff. Or are you able to at least live in the moment, relatively speaking, no. and enjoy that stuff? No, I think it's all about your perspective. I relish the information. I find it, it's fascinating to yeah. me. So like the people you meet at these things, like I'm a natural extrovert, so I find it very fun actually. Well, I'm there. It's when you go back, you're like, well, I'm baked. But in the moment, it's super interesting. I get this question sometimes from about being a public company and, and, and like, is it a tax to have to manage the investor community and engage the investor community? And no, I would say I, I view it very differently. I think it's fascinating. Like it's another source of information that we wouldn't otherwise get. And they, they're smart people with a different perspective on things. And, and actually when you're in the moment, it's very, very valuable. It's very, very useful. So no, I don't, I don't begrudge it. You just got to figure out how to manage your, your energy around it. Did you have your eyes on going public? Was there a moment where things felt clicking enough in the business because you went public in what 20, 2020 2021 2021 okay was there a moment that you thought okay we should start thinking about this no i think we thought it's just a financing event is is, is the truth yeah and, and i know people say that but it's true like we could have raised money at a higher rate from other people it would have been fine it actually started a long time before. When I step back and I go like, hey, this is an important company. We do important things. Our customers need us to be here. That was why we went public. At the time, we'd burnt very little money, back to my efficiency comment. We constructed a very efficient go-to-market motion, but our customers wanted us to be public. You know, when you're doing the kinds of things that we're doing, you need a billion dollars on your balance sheet that they can see. They need to see you in the governance of the public market so they can make a, what for them is easily a 10-year commitment. So that was the reason we did it. It was for no other, no other reason. So it started a long time earlier. But like, yeah, there's a very, very long arc of what you need to be to be a big, strong, independent company. And being public is one of them. So let's start that clock. And the clock happened to strike in 2021. And we went public and moved on and woke up the next day and kept doing our thing. Yeah. In the eyes of customers, it's a financing event, potentially. But in the eyes of early employees, like it's a liquidation event, right? It, it now, is- maybe those two things are hand in hand. But- there is something to be said around probably just rewarding the people that you recruited that 100%. were there before you. 100%. That, you know, and in some cases, this is their life's work. Like they haven't had five startups before this that have made it. Like this is the thing that maybe they get to go buy their first house. Yeah, it is awesome. But I'd say like the awesome part is we've had some of those folks that I convinced to join have stopped working and have told me that, and that's pretty cool. But they could have done that in a different way too. I mean, there are other ways to get employees liquidity in this day and age. Sure. You don't have to go public to do that. Yeah, that is a very, very cool part of this. And it's like, I think the message it sends to those people and sort of the risk that they took to do it is pretty cool. I think to your point, like the signaling of having a ticker on the stock exchange, a lot of families were probably like, you work, like they can't even understand, yeah. you know, like you can't, you work at HashiCorp, like what, you know, like you could spend an hour com- trying to explain to them and still, yeah, you still wouldn't really know. Yeah, people going. ask me all the time. I'm like, how much time you got? <laughs> like how close to infrastructure are you? Let's talk about certificate rotation. Let's talk about encryption. No, but it is cool. It is cool. And I think that's obviously why we do this. It's the team part of it. Like these yeah, you're able to really change people's lives, which is neat. You're also changing your customers' lives, which is ultimately the only reason this happens. It's easy to get distracted by all the things. We do this because it's satisfying to build a business that plays this role. And when you look at revenue, revenue is an articulation of value having been created. I pay you a dollar for this cup of coffee because it's worth a dollar to me. 
I then roll it up as revenue for me. And, and so it's a, it's a very clear manifestation of value creation. And that is what you focus on. And the derivatives of that creates lots of, you know, like you go public and someone puts an external value on that. That bounces around a bunch, just the nature of it. But it's that value creation bit with a group of people that is like a drug. Yeah. I think that's very well said, by the way. Was there something clarifying about any commentary that you got about time and the way that others advised you to spend your time that you'd be willing to share? What's some good advice that you've gotten around that? I think it's, it's like what gives you energy and what detracts it. That's the fundamental framework to think about. You know, what gives me energy, I love the customer facing part of it. Like it's just cool that I can talk tech at a really detailed level with these people in a way that you can see them light up and go, you just, that's exactly my problem. Please help me do that. And that is cool. It also makes our salespeople make, get good payouts out of, as a result of like helping them. That is super, super cool. That's energizing. Spending time with people in the employee sense is energizing to me. Spending my time doing the operational business reviews is taxing after a while. So great. Who are I bring in to run these parts of the machine so I can focus on this? But I think that's the big pit bit. I've been doing this for seven years and it's remained super interesting. And if you go, if I'm going to continue to do this for another X number of years, it has to be in a way that gives you energy. And so this energy modulation thing is probably the most important thing. I think sometimes I think you can look at companies and say like, actually the biggest indicator of that company's long-term arc may actually be the CEO's energy. Mark Benef's perfect example, right? That guy drives that company. If he backs off, it slows down. These markets move so fast that it requires this like relentless pressure of forward, 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 forward. Otherwise, somebody comes to eat you from behind. That CEO has to have energy and that's why you have to figure it out. Yeah, and it does strike me that that's probably a big reason why folks are very keen on investing in founder-led businesses and working for founder-led businesses because you can almost... Now I'm just pontificating, but you can almost just make a bet on the energy being there yep. because they started the company. You know, like you're counting on the fact that it's going to be harder for them to quit than somebody else. It's 100%. And that's the relationship between the VCs and the operators is like, yeah, you're putting your money on a horse. And I mean, Armand, perfect example. I don't know how many weeks he's traveled already this year, but it may be all but five. Like that's the kind of thing. And this is what it takes. And it's not obvious. Armour was in Asia two weeks ago. He was in Singapore, Tokyo, Seoul, then Sydney, Melbourne, right? That's five cities. Is there in, he did over two weeks. He had 40 meetings, right? So that's breakfast meetings. That's meetings through the day. That's hosting a meetup in the evening. So hosting a dinner for partners in the evening. Okay. That's just two weeks of his life. Like that is relentless. That is hard to do, but that's what it takes. And so you have to have people that have that drive, that chip on their shoulder, something to prove, which is why VCs back founders and and founders led companies often are the ones where they maintain that level of anger for a long long period of time. Do you think that a lot of founders that call you get caught up on this idea of balancing the short term versus the long term as it relates to endurance? They're just trying to survive. Totally. Most of them, I don't think they're. I don't think they necessarily have the long term trying to harvest, and they're just trying to get to the next phase. So not really. Yeah, I work for a CEO. In fact, the CEO of Hortonworks, uh, Rob Bearden, who's really, really good at this phase shift notion, and just 
your job as the leader of these companies is to anticipate the phase shifts. And so you're re-architecting the systems, re-architecting the, the leadership team so that the company doesn't feel it. And a lot of these companies, the early stage founders, they're not looking necessarily at the phases. They're just trying to get to, across the river. If you were to step back a little bit, you go, okay, this is a phase. There'll be a phase that comes after it, the phase that comes after it. Then you start to think of it differently, but that's not really how they think about it. The company doing, let's just say like 500 ARR plus today, starting at zero, is there a phase shift in your mind, a crucible moment that was the worst, the hardest, the one that maybe put another way, the company felt the most? It's the 30 to 100, 30 to 100. Why? Because you are, you lose people along the way. You There's a cadre of people that like the early stage. Hey, we're just here building something cool. And then there's the city planners that come in and say, no, like we're going to industrialize this. And not everybody likes that. And there's a cultural vibration that happens when that happens where they go, hey, this isn't what it used to be. And the truth is, yeah, yeah, it's because we're now an important company to a lot of people. And that that causes natural rotation. Along with the phases of the company come phases of employees too. Where, and you just got to be okay with that. Some people will be there for all of it. Some people will be like, I just don't like the next phase along. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exit out. So that happens around 30 to 100. By the time you get to 100, like you're a going concern, you're a commercial entity, you're going for it. Particularly coming out of the open source world where sometimes people's motivations are not purely commercial. They didn't love the idea that we were going commercial, but you have to. Otherwise, you know, you, you're going to let down the customers you have. What's the toughest feedback that anyone's ever given you? That I'm not open to feedback. <laughs> Interesting. I don't know that you could do what we do if you weren't fiercely independent. You know, that has its pros and its cons. And so people would say that for sure. And it's not that I'm not listening. It's just I have a very strong desire for independence. <laughs> so the best way someone described it was actually the guy that runs AWS Canada. He used to run Microsoft Canada and I know him pretty well. And he, he and I were talking back in the day when I worked for him. He said, you know, you should think about feedback as a gift, but you got to catch it out here and you got to inspect it and say, you know what, they caught me at a bad moment. I'm going to discard it or inspect it and go, you know what, there's probably something there. I'm going to internalize it. I think that's the way to think about feedback in general for those of us that are kind of independent and want to be independent. That's why we do this and we don't go work for bigger companies generally. And that's the trade. Yeah. On the Cloudera type markets, the Horton works, do you ever worry that you're in that moment? Because I don't think people now realize like that company then is basically what we think of as HashiCorp now, <laughs> right? Like it is the Vogue it company, everybody wants to go work for them, et cetera. I asked Thomas Curry in the same question from Google Cloud, like, and it goes back to my thought around feedback loops. Like, do you worry that at times you are just far enough out of the data streams? And maybe that's just the way that people tell you things, the way that people are willing to give you feedback. And, you know, maybe that's managerial feedback loops. Maybe that's product oriented or market oriented feedback loops. Somehow, some way, Everybody that is not the it company now has missed one feedback loop or another. I think it's about being in the data flows. I actually think, so the Hortonworks Cloud Era was super early. Like, you know, we went, we went public there at maybe like a hundred million in revenue. It was quite small. And so they were a lot smaller when that market shifted under their feet. I think of it differently. I'm a bit of a student of history. And I think when there are market transitions underway, there's a window. There's a window to win the trust of the Global 2000. And if you win that turf, 
it sticks uh, as the way they're going to do it. Because ultimately, they're in charge. You know, 80% of the category spend of any category is spent by the Fortune 2000 or Global 2000. Like Everyone's interesting. It's not on that list, but not that interesting. So if you can get 800 of those Global 2000 to be locked into your product at the infrastructure layer, it'll stick. And the market won't turn past you. If you don't get to that scale, right, there's a chance that somebody else will introduce a new way of doing what you were doing. I think that's the difference. And I think that's why we're so fixated on the Global 2000. I'm not sure what how many of them we have. We do publicize it. It's hundreds and hundreds, but that's the mission. And that's a paradigm shift in the last, call it 10 to 15 years of this winner-take-all characteristic of a market, wouldn't you say? I think it's Particular to infrastructure, I think it always happens at the infrastructure layer where, you know, when you went from like mainframe to client server, turns out there were like three or four major players. When you went from the client server world to the virtualization world, where there's really only one because you run lots of applications on top, but I need only a common way to to manage it all. And the same thing is true of networking. The same thing is true of like firewalls. There's like, you know, there's firewalls, like there's not two ways of doing security. It's firewalls in the private data center. So I actually think that's always the case in infrastructure. And it's what drew me to HashiCorp because I, my view is, hey, there's this transition going on, old world, new world, new world is multi-cloud. If I can win that position of trust with a thousand of the global 2000, the rest will come. And those are 30-year decisions. And there's not an opportunity to dislocate it until there's a next architectural transition because that's how these markets work. Almost like a network effect that you gain by taking the top of that. Yeah, you do for sure. Yeah, And I learned that lesson when I was at Microsoft competing against VMware, where they just came into every account and standardized vSphere back in the day when people were considering the construct and they just took the whole market in the end. And then my wife's job caused me to move here and I ended up working for VMware, ironically. Yeah. Dave, I appreciate you doing this. This is amazing. I could go for hours. That's Um, super interesting stuff. I conclude all these things the same way. The first is, are you hiring? Is HashiCorp hiring? Are there any specific roles that you need to close the loop on? Yeah, so yes, we're hiring. Careers at HashiCorp.com is the place to go. I'm probably a bit far removed from the details, know exactly what the big ones are at the moment, but certainly there's always need for technical talent. Last one, when you hear the word grit, who comes to mind? I mean, I see it every day. I think we maybe overly glamorize the world that we live in. You know, I see it from the people that work in the restaurants around me that, you know, they're doing what it takes to get through the day. The family-owned restaurants that, you know, I, I attend, you see the people who are like, yeah, they're doing what needs to be done to pay the bills and navigate the world they live in. That's why I think of it's regular people. I mean, it's the human condition is about navigating setbacks. Otherwise, you know, we're a pretty resilient species and that's why, because we do not give up. The other folks I think of, I think of my parents owned a farm when I was when I was a kid where I spent a lot of time working and the guys I'd work with there, I mean, smart, smart dudes that, you know, there's no, if a machine breaks down in the middle of somewhere, like no one's coming to get you. And it's not a physical thing, it's a mental thing. Every day, every day, every day. We see it in tech for sure, people that are navigating, but it's pretty high on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Wow, well said. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.